from the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guest Sting. It's the first advance in vinyl technology since the Bee Gees topped the chart with Saturday Night Fever. We'll tell you how much better your pops hisses and clicks will sound. It'll sound much better, trust me. And another hit from the 70s is back, The Music Club. We'll introduce you to the online subscription service, Vinyl Me Please. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. I have a bit of a problem trying to convince wifey that I need to buy a computer from 1979. What kind of computer would you buy from 1979? I want to buy the very first computer I ever used, a Commodore PET 4032. Come on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do know what you're talking about, but why would you want that? First of all, um, I'm addicted now that I've cut the cord on my cable to YouTube and Netflix on my Apple TV. And on YouTube, I'm addicted to a channel called 8-Bit Guy. And this guy goes through restoring old computers, explaining how they work, uh, all this kind of stuff. And he did a whole thing on the Commodore Pet. Welcome back to the 8-Bit Guy. So when you watch documentaries about early computer innovations, particularly the uh, late 70s, early 1980s, most of the documentaries tend to focus on Apple and Microsoft and maybe IBM as the big innovators. But I think often companies like uh, Commodore and Atari and Tandy don't get nearly enough credit for the role that they played. Now, most of my viewers are familiar with the Commodore 64, one of the best-selling computers of all time, uh, well-renowned for its great graphics and sound. But Commodore history didn't start with this machine. So... Let's go back a little bit to the late 70s and figure out where it all started. It all began in 1974 when Chuck Peddle and a group of engineers started up a chip fabrication company called Moss Technology. Most of these guys had worked at Motorola on their 6800 processor, and so they set out to develop a compatible CPU known as the 6501 that could simply be substituted for the much more expensive Motorola CPU. As you might imagine, Motorola sued, and to make a long story short, the 6502 was born. And that was the very first computer I ever had exposure to, and I have found one on Kijiji for $350. It still works. There's only one problem. I have to drive to Thunder Bay, Ontario to get it. To get it? They're not going to ship it? He refuses to ship it because of its fragile state. Oh. Yeah. Now, the little one... 12 going on 17 is like my 2012 macbook air is too slow <laughs> and so my little one wants a new computer so how do i justify to the wife spending 350 dollars on a computer that i'm literally going to type in 10 print hello world 20 go to 10 yes versus my daughter who needs a, a computer that i'm pretty convinced the 2012 macbook air still works I, i'm pretty sure that's what's going to win um Okay, well... Uh, what was the first computer you ever used? Uh, the first computer I ever bought, and you're going to laugh at me, I bought it in 1992. Wow, you were late to the game. I, I really was, because I was I, I couldn't get into all the geekery, geekery that was involved in, in those early computers. 
1992, I had it built by a guy in Orangeville, Ontario. It had a 40 megabyte hard drive, yeah. four megs of RAM, yeah. and a 386-40 AMD chip. So it probably cost you about $1,700. It was somewhere between, I, I had to lease it. I remember I actually had to buy it on time. And I later went and had uh, four more megabytes of RAM put in to speed it up a little bit. And I remember that costing me $800. Oh, yeah. I got to tell you, one of the neat things about the Commodore PET is to get at the innards, it opens up like the cab of a big rig. Oh, it has a clamshell. It even has a little kickstand to hold open the lid on the top, and then you get into the insides. One of the chips that they didn't include in the Commodore PET was an I.O. chip for a disk drive. So when they built the floppy disk drives to go with it, they put them in a separate box, and they had to build a whole separate Commodore PET without a monitor to power just the disk drives wow. on it. So And so the hard drives, the, the floppy drives, were just as expensive as the actual computer itself. Yeah, I would be, wouldn't be surprised. I mean, that's not nearly as bad as the old... Um TRS 80s from Radio Shack, which had the cassette player, yeah, where you had to load everything in off tape. How big were the disk drives? Were they eight inches or five inches? They were five and a quarter inch single sided drives that you could cut the notch out of the read write protect tab on the opposite side that didn't exist. Flip the disk over, format the other side, and you'd have double sided floppy disks. Okay, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, what it what you could do is because of the unique nature of the the connection between the the PET and the floppy disk drives, you could daisy chain PETs to a single pair of floppy disk drives, so that you could have an entire computer class, which is where I first used the PET, uh, with just using a pair of floppy disk drives. Okay. And how much storage did that give you? Uh, I think it was one hundred and twenty k. <laughs> which was insane at the time, yeah. particularly when the computer started at 16K and went up to 32. Yeah. The okay. last time these computers were of any true value, the music distribution method of choice was vinyl. Yes. Oh, you like the segue? Yeah, very good. Yes, clever. Ah. When the kingdom comes, he puts his record on and with his blistered thumb So I've been reading up that uh, Discogs and eBay about a month ago supplied for the first time ever detailed statistics on the sale of secondhand vinyl. And uh, the pair of them apparently sold 6 million used stacks of red hot wax. And then you add Amazon's almost 1 million other retailers to the total. Just in the United States alone, sales of used vinyl was 8 million units. And then you take in as many online sales, and that jumps to 16 million or so. It's back. Oh, no. What, are you just finding this out? 
Well, no, I've been doing this show with you for six years now, so I know it's back. But the, these are new numbers on used as well as new. There have been a lot of numbers coming out from the IRAA and Music Canada about uh, Nielsen, about the rise in vinyl sales. And they are all double-digit year-over-year increases. But the problem is those only ca- uh, they, those only look at um, sales of new vinyl. They don't take into account all the massive amounts of used vinyl that's changing hands. But they don't talk about used record stores. They don't talk about sales online through eBay or Discogs. They don't talk about... Um, record shows or anything like that. So if the number is, let's say, 500,000 units for the year, I think that's pretty close to what it is in Canada. It's probably triple that if we take into consideration all those other ways people buy vinyl. According to DJ Magazine, DJMag.com is reporting that the major labels are ready to make the first big change to the production of vinyl since the introduction of the Commodore Pet. Well. And that they'll unveil those plans in Detroit in early October. Are they out yet? They are, as a matter of fact. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, I was at a place called Viral Technologies in Etobicoke. Viral Technologies is not only a record pressing plant, but they are also a manufacturer of record pressing machinery. And I was actually in the factory. I pressed my own record from a puck of polyvinyl chloride. And uh, I saw. What did you press? I pr- oh, it was a uh, it was an indie band. I think they're called uh, local sports fan. Uh, and they, they just had their stuff there available. Their stampers were available oh, for okay. demonstration purposes. So it's not like you recorded an album. That would have been awesome. No, but I actually pressed a clear vinyl uh, clear vinyl record with uh, flecks of blue in it because that's what I wanted my record to look at. And then I got a tour through the place. And they, at any one time, have about $2.5 million worth of inventory. And they are selling record pressing equipment, the very latest record pressing equipment to people from Australia, Taiwan, uh, Sweden, you know, anywhere, uh, everywhere around the world. And they're one of two major manufacturers in the world, the other one being in Sweden, who are actually creating and building and designing brand new recording uh, record press, vinyl pressing equipment. So what's the big change in the technology? Uh, they were a little reticent to talk about it, but <laughs> uh, they do have these new special cutting heads. There is a new format coming out called Vinyl HD. And this came out of uh, either Austria or the Czech Republic. And basically, rather than doing it the old-fashioned way, cutting a master stamper with a stylus, with a, with a cutter head, they're going to use a laser. They're going to use a what? A laser. Arm the laser. Arm in the laser! And they are going to put uh, this, this laser in this computer-controlled uh, uh, cutting machine. We'll make sure that the grooves are exactly perfectly spaced, and that will increase the amount of music per side of a record from about 22 minutes to about 30. Uh, The grooves will be much more accurate than cutting it with a stylus, so you'll have better audio. And uh, the new stampers will last anywhere up to three to five times longer than the stampers that they're using today. Well, then this sounds like it's a perfect opportunity to introduce our guests. Go ahead, do it. Vinyl Me Please is a vinyl subscription service designed for those who are hooked on vinyl. Matt Fiedler is the CEO of Vinyl Me Please. He joins us from Denver. Good to have you with us. 
Hello. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. I was describing this to someone before we came uh, into the studio as it feels to me like what you're doing is Netflix back when they were sending out DVDs. Is that an accurate description? Actually, it's not. In part because it's that's illegal. You um, technically cannot rent music. Um, and the way that our service works is you, you can't ship the records back. So, uh, we feature one record a month. It goes out to all of our members and then you keep that record as a part of your collection. So it's more like a music club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Why? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, see he, okay. Okay. Matt, he doesn't get this. I am, I'm totally in tune with what you're doing. This guy has no clue. Hey, hey, back up. You told me about the new pressings of Kate Bush that are coming out real soon on vinyl, the the new masters. And I, for the very first time in my life, actually thought maybe I need to buy a turntable. Oh, good for you. Okay, so now we can continue with this interview because you are now now one of us. Great. Good. Not yet. Well, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we started the company because, like, it was it was as Spotify was entering the U.S. and the whole model from a consumer perspective was changing from paying for ownership to paying for access, and that was great. You know, we could never do what Spotify enabled us to do before, but at the same time, like, as music lovers, as people who just like defined ourselves by the albums and the artists that we loved, it felt like it was cheapening the experience to only be able to access it through a screen or a device of some kind. And so for us, we were drawn to vinyl. I mean, it wasn't like we saw some crazy big uh, business opportunity and wanted to capitalize on it, but it was something that it was a format that could provide kind of that depth and that richness that we were looking for. And so for us, it really started as like a a, a kind of a what if, you know, like what would it look like for us to uh, bring back the idea of a, of a record club? What would it look like for us to uh, feature one record a month where we're trying to create a community and a conversation to highlight the things that are the diamonds in the rough or didn't get the time and the attention that they deserved or, or whatever that might be? Well, you're, you're not the first to do this. I mean, a number of people have done it in the past. I mean, the sub pop. Yeah. When they first started 25 years ago, that's exactly what they were doing is they had the sub pop oh, 30 years ago. It was the sub pop record club. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Which 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 died because nobody was interested in it. Yeah, it's funny too. I mean, we, in some ways, I mean, the the model has been tried and, and has failed quite frankly many times before. Um, I think the reason in some ways that we've been able to be successful to the point that we have is that like we've approached it from a genuine music fans perspective as opposed to, um, you know, like a label where we're just trying to kind of put out more of what is already in our catalog. You kind of already know basically what you're going to get. There's kind of a defined framework um, through which the curation is going to happen. I mean, for us, we have the opportunity to curate the entire history of music. Uh, we are not beholden to working with one label or one distributor or whatever. So we've worked with artists and we've worked with, we featured music all the way from like the fifties uh, with like soul and jazz with artists like the Ben Webster quintet quint quintet um to like early 90s rap and hip-hop to indie releases that came out in the early 2000s to like folk releases coming out today so we featured a pretty broad spectrum of music and i think through that and and kind of our genuine and authentic passion for music we've been able to amass a pretty good business so that seems like a bit of a double-edged sword though because if i'm receiving uh one a record. <laughs> Sorry, I was looking for the word. Um, yep. When I receive one piece of vinyl a month, um, if I'm not that interested in it, then I'm going to give you a chance for the second month. Right. And if I, I'm not happy with what I got the second month, well, then that's a serious risk. So I can imagine the curation component is 
the most important component to your business model. Yeah, absolutely. You know, but at the same time, people are not signing up to uh, get more of what they already know they want. Ah, yes. No more Justin Bieber. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's what algorithms do. Is they they kind of give you more of what you already know you want. Um, our most loyal and often our best customers are the ones that are willing to kind of go on a little bit of a discovery uh, with us, and and they'll kind of ro- ride the roller coaster. Um, I mean, we featured albums that you never would that never would have seen the light of day if, if our company didn't exist and that's not to toot our own horn but it's just the reality um because we have distribution we have the ability to manufacture and we have kind of a built-in audience that will consume some of this stuff um but at the same time you're right you know like there's a lot of people that are like no i know what i want and i want to pick what i want and so i'm not going to subscribe to you and that's totally fine too um i mean we do have lots of features where people can opt out so if you will announce like the next record I don't know, 10 to 14 days before it ships. And if you don't want that record, you can swap and select something else from our archive. Um, there's also the opportunity to just shop through our e-commerce storefront. So you don't necessarily need to subscribe a lot of our archive and a lot of, uh, exclusive presents that we do are available there. Um, so it's not necessarily one size fits all service. You don't necessarily need to be, uh, kind of this, you know, person that is very broad, willing to have a kind of a random record to sent to you every month. But that is actually a pretty big percentage of our customer base. Certainly a lot better than the old Columbia Music Club, <laughs> yeah. where you picked your 11 records for one cent or 13 records for one cent. And then uh, they would send you all the substandard stuff. And I mean substandard in terms of the quality of the records you used to get, mm-hmm. like the physical quality. Mm-hmm. Because if, if, that, if those pieces of vinyl were pressed on 70 gram vinyl, it was a stretch, you know, <laughs> yeah. because the quality, the, the vinyl quality that came from record clubs was was terrible. OK, so b- back up and, and educate me here. You said 70 gram. It basically defines the weight of the record. Um, I'm not sure if it means that the record actually weighs 70 grams, but typically 70 grams means it's really thin. It's really flimsy. So it's really prone to like warpage and just being worn out pretty quickly 180 gram is kind of like the heavyweight vinyl it's kind of the and when you buy vinyl like i remember back when compact discs first became a thing that you would have add and you know that it was recorded analog but it was mixed digital and it was distributed digital Uh, is there any indication when you buy vinyl just what the quality of the physical pressing is Uh, there's usually a, a sticker on the front that tells you what you're buying if it's the, the proper 180 gram stuff. Otherwise, if you go and buy, and, and again, Matt can back me up here. If you go and buy a standard pressing of a new vinyl release, it's around 120, I think, right? 100, 120? Yeah, it's usually 120. It's usually black. Um, it's usually just kind of like a single, um, you know, like the sleeve is just kind of a single sleeve. Um, the... Um, the sleeves that actually hold the record are just like paper, which are really bad for your records too. So it's pretty much the cheapest version that you're going to get. It's it's the commodity version, uh, oftentimes the standard release. Why is paper bad for your for your vinyl? Um, I mean, it's probably more scientific than this, but if you think about it, like the grooves are so uh, like the details are so fine that anything that wears against it has the opportunity to, um, you know, like 
basically cause a defect in the music and, and kind of wear down the grooves. Um, so paper just is pretty abrasive. Um, and so when it's sliding in and out, it's kind of scratching against that paper. What you really want are, um, I think they're called poly lined inner sleeves, which are basically like anti-static, um, kind of slides in and out really nicely. They're awesome, but the paper sleeves are total, they suck. <laughs> and if they ever get wet, uh, they they turn they turn back to pulp and that pulp ends up in the grooves of the record. Ah, good point. I didn't think about that. So, uh, who have you got curating this stuff? Um, we have an internal music team that does a lot of the curation, um, but you know we're we're receiving. Um, I mean, we work really closely with the labels and with tons of artists. So we get a ton of stuff that's inbound. We get a lot of stuff that's straight from the studio before it's announced. Before sometimes before labels even know about it. Uh, but at the same time, we're going back through label catalogs, we're looking at their archives, uh, we're finding things that are unique, that haven't been pressed in a while, that are uh, amazing, maybe not. We kind of operate really, uh, where, we're, we, where we've had a lot of success is it's, um, curating things that are kind of like a layer beneath public consciousness. So it's not like, you know, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or Led Zeppelin or something like that, but it's, you know, the artist that inspired them or it's the artist that got inspired by them that you know, had a career that wasn't almost, that never grew up or something like that. Um, so that's kind of the, the vein in which we try to operate from a curation perspective. I had read uh, on your site, the physical act of unplugging and actively listening to a full album brings you closer with how the artist intended you to experience their work. I don't know if that's necessarily the case for everyone today. Album-oriented rock was a huge thing in the 70s, and I suppose lesser sure. to a lesser degree in the 80s. Um, I, I wonder how many artists actually sit down and compose with the intention of you listening to an album from beginning to end anymore. You know, the, the last time I actually sat down and listened to an album beginning to end, it was John and Vangelis' Friends of Mr. Cairo. Well... Well, what have you been doing since? <laughs> okay, this is the picture. Johnny's being hurt. He's we gotta leave him here, honey. We gotta. He won't talk. I promise you that. Will you, Johnny? The cops are outside. Luca's in the car. Come on, let's get the hell out of this.
been listening to One Hit Wonders, been listening to the, the, the big track that the music industry executive went, forget all that other crap, this is, the, this is the big winner track right here. Like One of the big burns of the compact disc revolution was I ended up paying $20, $30 for a compact disc and then going... I only liked one out of those 12, 13, 14 tracks. And I believe that played a big role in the rise of LimeWire and Napster. Sure it did. Absolutely it did. And the idea that people were spending 25 bucks and feeling burned because they only liked one track. And that in part, I think, I suspect the music industry plays a role in that. And the other side of it is the artists themselves focusing on an individual hit versus creating uh, an entire masterpiece yeah i mean i i i we we like to think that the album is um you know the album is kind of an art form in and of itself uh some of my favorite artists are the ones that do put that intentionality behind the album and you know it's kind of like the the whole is greater than the sum of its parts um and similar to a book you know like your favorite book you're not just reading one or two chapters of like it's the whole book that's super enjoyable and it's the experience that that creates and allows for that is, is a much deeper, allows for a much deeper, uh, like sense of appreciation, you know, like, and, and two, in a single world, um, you know, where it's driven by singles and it's all kind of top 40 and it's, I mean, it's, there's books written about how to write hit singles, you know, like there's a DNA to it. There's a certain amount of like beats per minute. There's a certain amount of like structure. There's, uh, you know, different ways that you can write these songs so that it can be manufactured to actually get on the radio and to be stuck in people's heads. You can't really do that with an album. So the the artistry and sort of the creativity that goes into creating an album that's amazing from start to finish, in my opinion, is much more meaningful than just creating one song that, that I like. Which comes full circle back to Alan's question about the curation and how critical it would be to choose an album that you could unplug. You could sit cross-legged in front of your stereo with the headphones on and dedicate 30, 40, 50 minutes. Right, exactly. There was a financial investment here. If you spent 20 or $30 on a compact disc, well, if I did, I would sit there and listen to that damn thing over and over and over again until I gave it its an honest chance to appreciate it. And chances are that after a while, I would. And, and it wouldn't be just the one song. It may be four or five or six. Or I may enjoy just listening to the whole thing because it was carefully recorded, carefully sequenced, carefully packaged. And, and all of a sudden, it's, it's uh, an entire work like a book that you enjoy. Right. And, and when you factor in, you know, what's in the jewel case or what's in the, you know, the pictures and the lyrics and the production credits and all that stuff, you know, it's it's the experience that is way more important than just kind of a single song. Yes. How does this service work? Um, so you sign up. It's uh, you can sign up for uh, you can pay month to month. You can do three month or 12 month plans where you pay in advance and you get a little bit of a discount. Uh, we have three different subscriptions that you can subscribe to, all with kind of a different flavor of curation. Uh, the first is called Essentials, which is pretty broad. It's the one that we launched with uh, way back in 2013. Um, and then there's Classics, which is centered around soul, blues, and jazz music. And then there's a third one uh, centered around rap and hip-hop. Um, and then every month, you get a record that's sent to you uh, straight to your doorfront. Uh, it's exclusively pressed for vinyl, please, which means you can't get that version often that record anywhere else um, and it comes with some other accoutrement uh, like our essentials has a cocktail pairing recipe and a 12 by 12 art print the classics has like a 12 page 
uh, listening notes booklet, and then the rapid hip hop has like a street art stencil that goes with it. And this is just twenty five bucks a month. Yeah, so the monthly price is twenty nine, and then I think if you pay in advance for twelve months, it's it's about twenty five dollars a month is what it comes out to. And when you consider how much it costs to go out and buy a single piece of vinyl these days, that's actually a really, really reasonable uh, cost. Yeah. And then, too, you know, bringing it back to the earlier point about the standard releases, which are typically kind of the cheapest form that you can get, uh, those will run you $19, $20, $21. Um, ours are deluxe special edition. They're kind of the definitive two-ohm copies. So they're pressed on that heavyweight 180-gram vinyl. Uh, the jackets are super high quality. Everything that we do is sort of to appease like the audiophile type person, uh, but it's also accessible to the newbie vinyl collector. See, Michael, it's it's just for you. <laughs> just for me. Matt Fiedler is the CEO of Vinyl Me Please. He joined us from Denver. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, guys. This was awesome. Guests of Geeks and Beats stay at the luxurious Trump Hotel in downtown Toronto because when you think class, you think Trump. Time now for Geeks and Beats News Updates. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We've got it. CES 2019 Media Accreditation. Okay, so we get to go. Uh, you are going for sure, but we just haven't quite determined exactly what's happening with me. Right. So is this the point where we beg for money? Is that how that works? Yeah, I'm afraid we're going to have to. Okay. Where are you staying, by the way? I don't even know that yet. Haven't even gotten that far. This, this, it's amazing that I'm already accredited. It, it literally took CTV until December 15th every year to decide <laughs> whether or not we were going two and a half weeks later. It was ridiculous. Right. Um, and then what would happen is all the hotel rooms would be booked up. Right. So we would end up staying at the Luxor, which needs to be washed down in bleach, if you ask me. Oh, okay. Oh, they, when, do you remember the Luxor when they first opened it? That's the one in Las Vegas that's shaped like a pyramid. Yeah. So when they opened it, they would have people dressed as pharaohs, soldiers, and all that kind of stuff. It, it, you you could pay people to carry you around like you were the Queen of Sheba kind of thing. Oh, really? The year 1922. The place, Egypt's remote Valley of the Kings. An unknown archaeologist named Howard Carter has discovered the tomb of the child pharaoh Tutankhamun. As he chips a hole through the end of the passageway, Howard Carter is asked, Do you see anything? Yes, he replies, wonderful things. If only he had lived to see this. Luxor, Las Vegas. The world's only pyramid-shaped hotel, casino, and entertainment complex. And a discovery not unlike the one Carter explored in 1922. Only this discovery you must explore yourself. Within Luxor, you can voyage back 3,000 years on the River Nile, past elaborate murals illustrating the rich history of the ancient Egyptian empire. And look upon the seated Ramses of Abu Simbel. 
much the way Howard Carter looked upon the elaborate and beautiful treasures in King Tut's tomb. But they haven't updated the place since. So when we had the big late uh, mid-90s downturn, They fired all those people and turned it into basically a regular hotel casino that just happens to look like it's got an Egyptian theme. And there's paint chips everywhere. The the wallpaper's peeling off everywhere. I I didn't tell you this, did I? One year I showed up for my hotel room and there was a stain on one of the chairs. Ew, ew. Yeah, that was quite obviously that kind of stain. Oh, you could just tell by the shape. Yeah. Now, if you were housekeeping, you have two options, right? You can either flip that cushion or you can call down and say, hey, we need to replace this cushion. Now, obviously, they didn't replace the cushion. No. So naturally, you would assume that they had flipped it, right? So if that's the good side of the cushion that they're showing the public. You didn't touch it, did you? Oh, I didn't dare touch it. I didn't dare lift the cushion to see what was on the other side by any stretch. No. But that's the Luxor, and that's where we ended up going every year. Uh, And so I don't know where we're going this year, but um, it's certainly going to be a little more upscale. Hang on. So who's booking the hotel? Who's in charge of that? Oh, I've got a PR person responsible for all this. (sighs) Well, okay. I've farmed all that stuff out. So throw my name on top of that, because I, I don't want to be at the Luxor. No, no, we, we won't put you at the Luxor. But the okay, thing is, good. is that we don't have any money for you, which is why we're begging, right? No, right, yeah. okay. Because I'm, I'm doing this through a whole separate company. I, I want to I sure, ensure everybody, assure everybody, that uh, this, this is not going to be you and me, you know, hookers and blow on the strip. I mean, this is going to be a working two or three days, right? Oh, yeah. Every year, people are like, oh, you're such a geek. You must love going to see. This must be so much fun for you. And I'm like, it's so much work for me. That's what it really is. Well, yes, it is. And because I was always doing it for CTV, I would have to be up bright and early East Coast time to report for the morning shows and all of that kind of stuff. So I would be invited to things at night that I couldn't go to because I literally have to be in bed. Well, sure, because if you were doing an 8 o'clock hit... On in the Eastern time zone, that's 5 a.m. Las Vegas time. Exactly. So if you go to geeksandbeats.com, click support the show. Uh, you can support us via Patreon or PayPal, and every dollar gets plowed right back into the program. And in this case, uh, hopefully we can uh, rustle up enough cash to get you a plane ticket in the hotel uh, for the time that uh, we are there. As long as I don't have to fly Air Canada rough. Rough, not Air Canada Rouge? They spelled it wrong. It should be Air Canada rough. Yeah, you're probably right. Oh, God. Uh, this last time I flew there, it was on, on, on rough, and uh, it yeah. was. We want to say goodbye to Mark Bradley. He was an intern since May of 2015. I want to say thank you very much for all your generosity over the course of the last few years or so, including when we were down for a, a little bit, taking that uh, brief hiatus. But we're back. Uh, and uh, next week as well, we are back with a very important show. We are? Where where have you been in the newsroom where we've been having these emails flying back and forth? Obviously nowhere. Why? Where? Two important things, October 17th. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. Okay. Marijuana legalization in Canada and the first anniversary of the death of Gord Downey. 
That's right. A coincidence? I don't think so. But anyway. <laughs> yeah, you know what? We, we should probably get to the bottom of that. <laughs> because the, the hip were big supporters of medical marijuana while Gord Downey was dealing with his brain cancer fight. This is this is absolutely true. And uh, we're going to hear more about from them because they are shareholders in a cannabis company called yep. New Strike. With the ticker symbol HIP. On the Toronto Venture Exchange. Hip.v. Yep. And so you're going to see, uh, I, I think you're going to see some hip presence of some sort in concert with uh, New Strike and Up Cannabis, which is uh, New Strike's cannabis division. Yeah, you've been uh, landing on panels in the cannabis industry uh, as of late. Talk about sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Yeah, no kidding. I've uh, Listen, it's going to be as, as legal as having a glass of scotch. Uh, We have never seen anything like this anywhere in the developed world. Canada will be the second country in the world to legalize cannabis after Paraguay. Uh, Everybody is watching the Great Canadian Experiment, and I'm fascinated to see where it goes because we're taking a substance that is still a Schedule One drug in the United States. In other words, it is viewed by American federal authorities as bad as heroin and opioids and uh, meth and cocaine, and we are making it legal here for recreational personal use. If we were a distance from the United States, this wouldn't be as big a deal, but uh, it is going to be a big deal. Um, and here's here's an interesting sort of wrinkle into the whole thing. There are states, of course, like Washington and Oregon, California and uh, Colorado, that are okay with the whole marijuana thing. However, the uh, the federal U.S. government is not generally okay with it. So if you were to try to cross the border and you were a legal recreational marijuana user in Canada and the Homeland Security guy at the border says, have you ever smoked or consumed marijuana? And you say, well, it's legal. Yes. He could or she could ban you for life from the United States. Or ban you for working for a marijuana company or owning shares in a marijuana company. This is another issue. I may own a share or two of one or two companies. and uh, Do you? If, if Yes, I do. Okay, disclosure. Who do you own? The new strike. Oh, nothing wrong with that. Uh, although I, I can imagine you'd probably prefer at this point to have owned Canopy Growth. Uh, Canopy Aurora, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I'm a little underwater on the new strike thing. But anyway. I don't want to kill your buzz, man. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.